0: Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time let's uh, take a look at some headlines coming out of the european region uh what can we expect from the g7 summit in japan that's uh, set to start tomorrow till may the 21st we're also gonna take a look at the united kingdom feeling more heat from their brexit decision on the line with me is a good friend dr samir puri who is visiting lecture in war studies at king's college london and the author of the book russia's road to war with ukraine dr samir good afternoon Good afternoon, Elliot. Great to speak to you again. Uh, It's very nice speaking with you, and I know you're all prepped uh, for that uh, talk you're giving tomorrow at ACM.
1: (laughs) That's right. I'll be at the Asia Civilizations Museum 7pm for a free talk if anyone would like to join. It'd be great to see you all. That's
0: going to be quite excellent. All right, uh, Dr. Samia, let's uh, start off with the G7 summit in Japan. It starts tomorrow till the 21st of May. Key issues, I guess, China, Russia, and I bet the U.S. debt ceiling is probably going to make the headlines as well. Uh, what are you looking at here?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, of course, the G7 is a group for the world's most economically advanced democracies. But this is a geopolitical G7 Because, as you mentioned, it's really Russia and China. And the thing with these big international summits is it always comes down to, at the end of it, can you get a joint statement out of the seven prime ministers or presidents that are there? So, of course, over Russia, it's aggression in Ukraine. That's easy. That's a no-brainer. You will condemn it. All seven G7 members will do so. But over China, that's really tough because clearly there are going to be some G7 countries that are pushing for a tough line on China. Mm. And there are others who are looking at China saying, well, they are a huge trading partner. So we want to be tough. We don't be that tough. Because, you know, they haven't done anything like Russia has done. So that's going to be, I think, what we'll be looking for is divisions over China
0: or unity. We'll see. Mm, Divisions or unity. And as we're speaking, I'm looking at live images out of Hiroshima, where the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has arrived for the G7 summit in Japan, that is. What kind of role do you think Germany is going to play? They've been quite prominent, uh, especially during the Trump administration time.
1: Right, so I think Germany is one of the countries where that issue of what sort of line will they take on China is going to be quite important because Germany is not a a militaristic country, quite the opposite. So when you have the USA and the UK pushing really tough lines on global issues, Germany tends to look a bit more to trade and economics. Mm. There's one other issue, Elliot, which I think we'll come to a bit later, I'm sure, is the G7's discussions over Turkey. Of course, Turkey is not in this club, But, you know, Turkey is where everyone's getting ready for another few years of uh, kind of anti-Western Turkey. So that's also going to be, I think, an issue that comes up for
0: the G7 leaders as well. Yeah, I got a couple of issues about Turkey that I do want to bring up. But just wrapping up this G7 uh, summit uh, preview, what about President Biden's sort of little NATO narrative? Uh, You know, how do you expect that to be received by the other countries?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> tricky so, but one. Biden as you know, he he had to cut short the trip to Asia and and Australia. I think everyone caught this in the headlines a few days ago. Yes. So I think there's already a question, so you know, America is saying it wants to have this big presence in Asia. Obviously, it's, it's the big power in NATO, and, and NATO is now almost at the front line, if not at the front line, of the defense of Ukraine against Russia. So I think there are questions are always going to be asked over Biden's ability to embody the leadership of the G7. America is the biggest economy in the world, still just about. Biden is the man at the helm. But everyone knows in democracies that, you know, his time may be numbered in terms of the U.S. elections coming up. So as always with Biden, I think because he's getting on in age, there's always going to be that spotlight when he's in Hiroshima speaking at the G7, talking to other
0: leaders. How alert and inspiring is he? It's almost sad when we talk about it, right? Because there shouldn't be ageism there. And we're not coming from a place of ageism, but it is an immensely huge job when you're the biggest economy in the world. We can't comprehend it.
1: We can't comprehend it, and you're absolutely right. Of course, with age comes great wisdom. yes yeah. and yeah. you've seen so many seasons. You and Biden's political career is so long; he's got such great contacts across the American political spectrum. But this is an energetic job that would tire out a forty-year-old. Yeah. Imagine the amount of time on an aeroplane. Imagine having to switch between issues. The mental agility that that requires. Imagine also, as I'm saying, at a time of big geopolitical change to really embody what the G7 is uh, for the rest of the world. Just one last observation on the G7, Elliot. If you look 50 years ago, the total G7 economies were a really large percentage of the global GDP. That percentage has shrunk, so the G7 still matters, but it matters a bit less than it did in terms of the total amount of economic production around the world. And you know, it says it's the club of the world's most advanced economies, but of course China isn't there, Russia was ejected from what was the G eight back in 2014. They were kicked out of the club, hence it went back to being called a G7. India isn't there, Brazil, they're not there. So you have to also ask yourself about the relevance of the G7 in the next few decades. Maybe not today, but in
0: the next few decades as well. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite an interesting G7 because you're getting a lot of comments from these world leaders. Rishi Sunak, the latest, talking about how uh, the Indo-Pacific is going to be very important, and interestingly, he's thrown in the fact that uh, their position on Taiwan has not changed as well. So, uh, going to be quite a tasty couple of days in Japan. Japan, huh?
1: Definitely. And of course, Japan has now released some of its own restrictions on how it can use its own military in yeah. the event of conflict. So, again, you might expect something a bit different from Kushida, the Japanese yeah. prime
0: minister as well. Yeah. OK, uh, Dr. Samir, let's uh, move on to talk about Turkey as uh, tens of millions of Turkish voters went to the polls over the weekend, casting their vote in the presidential and parliamentary elections. Uh, what do we know about the uh, Turkey election style? What do we know about the outcome as well? We know that the initial
1: expectation, certainly in Western Europe, and the hope, rather, is that the opposition candidate, Kemal Kilishterioglu, which is a difficult name to pronounce, uh, was uh, going to possibly challenge Erdogan, who's been in power for the best part of 20 years. That does not look like it's going to come to pass. It's gone through a runoff. And it looks like Erdogan will potentially enter a third decade of power. So with that in mind, the West is bracing itself for a Turkey that is actually quite ambivalent to to Western Europe and to the USA and very happy to talk to Russia and to actually play this kind of middle ground role, mm. uh, talking to the, you know, what the Westerners describe
0: as the autocracies as well as their own
1: democracies.
0: Actually quite interesting about how they are playing sort of middleman or middle ground because the current president, uh, type Erdogan, announced a two-month extension of a UN-backed deal under which Ukraine ships grain across the Black Sea uh, to global markets. And, you know, it was announced a day before this deal was Set to expire this grain deal that everyone's been paying attention to
1: yeah that grain deal was a big accomplishment for all involved the u.n turkey and some private mediators because it is one of the few points of diplomatic agreement between russia and ukraine during this horrendous conflict but turkey knows it has enormous bargaining leverage over the continuation of this deal Mm. and every time the deal is renewed turkey looks like it's playing a very productive role in this middleman position between Ukraine and the Western countries and Russia, of course. And Turkey, I think, relishes that power and that influence. Because remember, Turkey, 10 years ago, was still hopeful it would join the EU. Yes. But it was spurned, in effect, by France and Germany in particular. And I think, you know, 10 years, so much has changed. And now Turkey, I think, is quite confident to exist under Erdogan outside of that Western club, and in this middle ground position where it wants to seek
0: as many positive relationships yeah. uh, for its own national power. And geographically, the position is so interesting, right? Because it's part of the West, also part of the East. <laughs> uh, hi-
1: historically, yeah. Istanbul, or what was Constantinople, you know, in, in yes, centuries gone yes, by, yes, yes. straddles the Bosphorus, everyone who's been there, you physically feel like you are at the meeting point between the East and West. Such a fascinating country to visit.
0: Yeah, not quite the time of Mehmet, but still very historically interesting. Although I am curious, uh, Dr. Samir, talking about uh, Mr. Erdogan, would I be correct to phrase it this way? What makes him so well liked by
1: the Turkish people? I mean, I haven't been to or worked on Turkey for Mm -hmm. just over Mm -hmm. a decade, but I did actually earlier in my career. I worked on something to do with the Cyprus peace process. Okay. And at the time, I remember Erdogan's grassroots appeal. He played football, soccer. Uh, he was moderately Islamist, whereas Turkey had developed in the twentieth century as a secular country against Ataturk sort of so he was actually, I think, quite a populist in terms of religion, in terms of his upbringing and i think there was a lot of appeal but latterly it's his embodiment of turkish national pride at a time as we sort of talked about turkey's never going to join the EU, turkey's been criticized by america for buying a particular russian missile system for example erdogan kind of embodies a spirit of well i don't really care about this criticism i'm going to do what's good for to my own country and that's Very frustrating to Turkey's partners, but I think there's always going to be a possibility of some kind of appeal. But having said that, his suppression of protests in Turkey in, I think, 2011, 2012, has also been a cause for great unpopularity amongst those who oppose his rule. So, I mean, this is really the sum total of what's happened in Turkey's election. It's a very divided country. But Erdogan looks like he's still going to edge to a victory through
0: those divisions. Talking about divisions, uh, I want to talk about the UK uh, while uh, Mr. Rishi Sunak is busy at G7 and uh, talking about the country's position on Taiwan, being challenged about China. I want to talk about the other issue that they're facing, the Brexit deal or the fallout of Brexit. We're looking at some of the world's biggest car makers uh, calling on the government to renegotiate part of the Brexit deal or risk losing parts of its car industry. Dr. Semir, where is this warning coming from? And I guess for those of us who who aren't aware, how does Brexit affect the automobile industry in the UK?
1: Well, I can talk very generally about Brexit and its impact on companies and and the automobile industry. Like anything, it relies on those just-in-time supply chains, Mm. components manufactured in different parts of the world and they're put together to be fully manufactured in in one factory. It's very complex doing this across the red tape of an EU. To UK border and, and also because the regulations have been in some flux as you know the Conservative Party has, has tried and succeeded to renegotiate parts of the Brexit deal It's a lot of uncertainty for business. And when you're a business, what you're looking for is is some certainty, some predictability. Certainly with automobiles, the UK's domestic automobile industry really, I think, collapsed, I think it's fair to say, in the 20th century. I was an undergraduate at Warwick University in the Midlands, and nearby Coventry, the town of Coventry, was famous in its heyday for car manufacturing, but no more. And you have that sense of industrial decline in parts of the UK. So really with car manufacturing, you're looking at foreign companies uh, who are investing in plants in parts of the UK rather than domestic British companies. And I think that really is the issue. Is is the UK an attractive, viable and predictable uh, location for that kind of investment? Mm. But having said all of that, there are plenty of companies that are still investing in the UK. But I have to say... I think it's less complex if you're on the services side uh, than perhaps if you're on the sort of physical manufacturing side. But that's just my impression, I think, about post-Brexit business environment in
0: the UK. I got a feeling during that time, uh, Coventry City also had a pretty decent football club. But the days (laughs) of Robbie Keane are done. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Dr. up, interesting point. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, speaking to Sky News, said that the UK needs an improved Brexit deal with the EU. Is he seven years too late? I mean, how would this even be possible? Well, you know, the Labour Party has always had a very odd position on
1: Brexit, which was Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer's predecessor, actually supported Brexit, and you'd think the opposition party would be able to oppose the policy. Well, they can't. They just have to oppose how the Tories have approached Brexit, which is a very, very different thing. So I think there's, it's become a political football. And Keir Starmer is uh, looking at, I guess, probably adjustments rather than fundamental, massive fundamental shifts to try to differentiate their position. But just imagine what this looks like from Brussels. From the european continent uh, the mainland of the european continent you're looking at these two british political parties one in power one out of power always talking fiddling with the deal i mean is okay. this going to go on forever and what sort of impression does this give you about the united kingdom because it's very possible labor will be the next government yeah, yeah. and it's not so much we back to square number one but will brussels now receive a brand new negotiating delegation from the uk now sponsored by the labor government saying we want to adjust things in a very different way. And that, I think, is, is going to be
0: a difficult thing to manage between Brussels and London for, for years to come. All right. Uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Samir Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London and author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samir, I appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Thursday evening. Fantastic. Good to speak to you, Elliot. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg.